And what I want to do before we even get into this is just offer a word of prayer, uh, for the, specifically for the message. Um, I recognize that, yeah, when it comes down to the Word of God, this is something special. This is something sacred. This is more than just human wisdom and just kind of thinking through these things. This is about God speaking to us. And so, if you will, let's just pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the opportunity to study the Word. And um, having been able to share with each other specific burdens for people's uh, spiritual uh, conversion, that they would have a starting point, so to speak, even in the midst of their physical suffering, God. Um, Lord, we want to lay these burdens down. Anything that may be distracting us emotionally, relationally, spiritually, um, whatever burdens we may be bearing, God, we just give those things to you. And we ask that as we open up the Bible, you would give us clarity that comes only from your Holy Spirit. Um, as we talk about a starting point, not just of our relationship with you, but a starting point for relationship with people, for genuine community, uh, we pray that you would speak to us and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So yeah, today we're talking about a starting point um, for how we actually share life. You know, our, our, our essential mission, it's on the front of our bulletin, we exist to make passionate followers of Jesus who seek God, share life, and serve the world. And it's one thing to tell people, go ahead and seek God, go ahead and share life, go ahead and serve the world. But it's another thing to actually figure out where does that all begin in the first place. And so today we're focusing on sharing life. All of us, we share life with with people, whether we want to or not, (laughs) right? We share cubicle space, we share classroom space, we share bed space, whatever the, the case may be. We share life with people, but how do we do that in such a way that it's actually Christ-centered? How do we do that in such a way that we enjoy and, and really rejoice in sharing life with one another? So we're going to be talking about that today, connecting in community. I'm going to put a picture up here that um, may make sense to some of us, may, maybe not. Um, <clears throat> this, uh, do, do you guys know these individuals? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I grew up in California. <laughs> I grew up in Bakersfield, which is relatively close to Los Angeles, and the purple and gold um, were, were colors that I grew up watching uh, from the Showtime Lakers of Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, all those guys. Anyways, um, but there was a stretch in the 90s where they were horrible, horrible. We are at now. <laughs> okay, I guess it comes in 20-year cycles. <laughs> but, um, but here's the thing. There, there were some glory days. This was my senior year in high school, year 2000, summer of 2000, Shaq and Kobe. Um, they, they won their first championship together. And, um, you know, in Shaq's words, they were the greatest one-two punch the NBA had ever seen. They won three consecutive NBA championships from 2000, 2001, 2002. And um, the thing is that 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 intense momentum, they were basically dominating the game. Uh, Dynamics changed over the course between uh, 2000. Uh, two and on, dynamics somehow changed. There were, there were criticisms. Uh, Kobe kind of uh, criticizing Shaq for his work ethic, not really being disciplined and things like that. There were shortcomings. There, were, uh, there was infighting, etc. But ultimately, what, what kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back was that um, in the summer of 2004, their contracts were expiring, which meant that there were negotiations for future contracts. 
and Kobe wanted more, Shaq wanted more, Phil Jackson deserved, you know, all these guys. Anyways, all these dynamics kind of created a perfect storm. And according to um, an interview taken in 2004, this is what Shaq said. He said, this summer is going to be a different summer for a lot of people. Everyone is going to take care of their own business and everyone is going to do what's best for who? For them. Everyone is going to do what's best for themselves, in, including me. You know, I can't, I can't really imitate Shaq's voice. But anyways, you, you get the idea. And so this whole, like, huggy family team where this, you know, we're enjoying life, all of that changed as they began to think more about their self-interest and what they were getting out of the deal, quote-unquote. And this is a perfect example of pride, the way pride and, and self-exaltation, a centering upon our own um, desires and needs, how all of that stuff seems to dissolve even the best of teams, even the best of community and relationships and trust. I don't know, maybe you've, maybe you've had uh, this, this experience yourself. Uh, the reality is that sharing life, whether in a team, in a classroom, in a workplace, in a family, in a marriage, sharing life is difficult. It's difficult as a default because pride is our default. Do you follow that? It's difficult as a default because self at the center is our modus operandi. That's just how we are. And maybe you felt the impact of selfishness and how that ruins relationships. But there's something very interesting um, <clears throat> that as we, as we uh, engage in sharing life with one another, we at times will experience sweet moments of community. And if you have those in your frame of reference, if you've ever had those sweet relationships the, the, where you realize that there's fellowship that's taking place and that's it's special, it's usually because self is being put aside. Have you ever noticed that? Like in those moments where your friendships, that, that best friend is really your best friend. It's not one of those days when your best friend is not your best friend. Yeah? You know? um, when, when those seasons are in, in, in place, you actually realize that you're more interested in them, they're more interested in you and seeing each other benefit. Um, and so the flip-flop is true. When we begin to let self be supreme, when we begin to exalt self and our own needs, those are the things that dissolve a sense of community. Um, I'm going to skip here really quick, and we're going to go to John chapter 13 together. Come with me to the Gospel of John. There was a team in the New Testament that Jesus was forming, and uh, this team was not just entrusted with the charge to, rent, to win a championship trophy. This team was entrusted, or would be entrusted, with the, with the Gospel Commission with taking the good news of who God is to the entire world. So let's go to John chapter 13. And Jesus, as he is dealing with his team, kind of forming his team, he's realizing that after three and a half years, the disciples of Jesus, even though they had been on the same team, even though they had uh, been walking together, sharing meals together, all of this, these 12 men were on the brink of breaking up. <laughs> these 12 men were experiencing self and pride just intrude every aspect of their relationships. And so here we are in John chapter 13, in the upper room. And you kind of get this idea that there's, there's a tension going on. In John chapter 13, I'll just start reading in verse 1. If you're there, go ahead and say, I'm there. All right, John chapter 13. I'm reading from the New King James Version. 
The Bible says in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 2, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, dot, dot, dot. We'll just stop it right there. As John is setting up this upper room scene, he's introducing some moments or some some strains of tension. Judas has actually become devil-possessed. Judas has opened his heart door to allow his own agenda to take priority. And it's not only Judas that is experiencing this. In fact, all the disciples... As they're entering the upper room, this feast, this supper that Jesus desperately wanted to have with them, um, everybody has some bitter taste in their mouth toward one another. And it all kind of stems back to this conversation that James and John had with Jesus a few weeks earlier, actually probably just over a week earlier. Do you remember what James and John said to Jesus as they were kind of walking this road? Actually, James and John brought their mom into this conversation. And James and John's mom said, hey, would you do, would you fulfill this request? <laughs> Jesus said, well, what do you want? That my sons would be on your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom. They had these prideful ideas of Jesus establishing an earthly kingdom, and they wanted to be right and left hand. They wanted to be first and second. The, 12, the, the 10 other disciples probably caught wind of this, and, and that, doesn't just, that just doesn't bode well for good hanging out. Like, hey, let's, let, everything's hunky-dory. <laughs> no, because, because pride took supremacy. They wanted to be first. By, by even requesting to be first and second, they were assuming that everybody else wasn't first and second. Does that make sense? And so, so as they're entering into this room, there are all these dynamics. James and John, that whole conversation, still kind of wrinkling in their hearts and minds. And then there's another dynamic. There's a certain custom of the Jewish, uh, you know, of that feast that when they would come together, there would be a servant already assigned to actually wash the disciples' feet, and there is no servant present. As a result, everybody is looking around to who's the lowest on the totem pole to do this for us, and nobody would yield their pride to say, I'll do it. And so here's Jesus. He's, he's loving this team to the end, the Bible said. And I want us to see these epic words in verse 4. It says that Jesus rose from supper. So here's Jesus getting up. And he rose from supper in order to do what? And he laid aside his garments. He took a towel and girded himself. Notice what Jesus is doing. Jesus, in the midst of this kind of like tense moment of silence where every disciple is thinking, I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. Jesus stands up and he lays aside his garments. And what he does is, according to this verse, is he took a towel and girded himself. In other words, he took the form of a servant. He, Jesus, the King of Kings, actually made himself a servant. And in the following verse, we see what happens. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet And to wipe them with what exactly? With the towel with which he was girded. All right, right, right. So just just catch the scene again. Here's Jesus' team. And they're about to break up because of pride and self-sufficiency. Self-exaltation. 
And Jesus isn't going to let this persist. And so in order to counter that, in order to undo that, Jesus has to do something himself. And he doesn't just slap them upside the head. He doesn't just rebuke them sharply with words. What he does is he acts. And what do his actions speak? Here, we see that Jesus actually takes a towel. He, he takes the form of a servant. In other words, he condescends. He, he, he humbles himself. And he lays himself aside rather than grasps for his own uh, reputation or significance. And I think that's totally opposite of, the, of, of our natural uh, mode of operation. Our, our natural tendency is when our pride is wounded, we guard our, our reputation, right? But here's Jesus, and he stands up. But he stands up to stoop down. Here's Jesus. He stands up to be a servant. So he condescends, he humbles himself, but, but not only that, he washes the disciples' feet and he wipes them with the very towel with which he was girded. After Jesus did this, were the disciples' feet clean, yes or no? The disciples' feet were clean, yeah. After Jesus did this, the disciples' feet were clean. The filth that was on them was now somewhere else. Question, where was that filth? It was on Jesus, yeah. Do you realize what Jesus is doing? He's taking their filth and making it his own. And there's something very interesting here. Um, I don't have it on the screen, but there in verse 7, I want us to see this. This is so powerful. In verse 7, it says, Jesus, I'm um, sorry, let's, let's start in verse, verse 6. Then he came to Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? <clears throat> are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know later. You'll, you'll get it later. You'll understand this eventually. What was Jesus doing? He was revealing the cross even before he got to Calvary. Follow this, follow this. Jesus was revealing what the cross would accomplish even before he became the lamb on the cross. In other words, he was revealing the gospel even before he got there. He, he was laying self aside. He would take their filth, their brokenness, their sin upon himself that they would be cleansed and made whole. And in the process, he would become sin for them so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. He's revealing the cross. He, he's saying, hey, this, this is actually what I'm going to do. And you're going to understand this later. You're going to understand this after you see me hanging upon the cross between heaven and earth. You're going to understand this after. But this is what I'm doing now. And again, I, I want to ask this question. What was it that created the need? Why did Jesus need to reveal this gospel in this moment right here in the upper room? This, this moment of, uh, of tension, of pride, of wounded pride. And what, what created this need in the first place, what created this desire for Jesus to reveal the gospel even before the cross, was the brokenness of their relationships. It was the brokenness of their trust. And all of that was the result of self taking the full horizon of their priorities, self taking the full horizon of their, of their, uh, of their importance, their sense of team and community had been lost and Jesus needed to reveal the gospel. Um, question. 
When you think about how community and human relationships were even broken up in the first place, what, what stories come to mind? Where did it all begin, anyway? I mean, did God create us to have tension throughout our, our human experience? Yes or no? No, right? He, he created a perfect world in perfect relationship with one another and in perfect relationship with God. But where did all this mess come from? The garden, right? Yeah, in the Garden of Eden, this is, where, this is where things kind of got started. Really, the first waves of blame, the first waves of mistrust, the first waves of, he did it, she did it. No, the serpent, you know, all of that, it all started there. And it all started as a result of looking away from God as the great giver and assuming that God was actually the great taker, restrainer. It was all as they, they misunderstood who God was and they began to reflect that, that misunderstanding themselves. They even began to project that upon God. Like, God, man, if you only hadn't given me this woman, if you hadn't made this snake to be in this garden, you know, all these kinds of things. And it all started, it all started as we misunderstood God's true character. Think about the next story. So that's in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 4, there's another story of a completely broken relationship. Brothers, Cain, Abel. And, um, and it ends up being like the, 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 the worst extreme that you could possibly imagine. Cain ends up murdering his brother. Why? How did that even begin? Was it because of a, of a, a mean word, a, a bad practical joke? I would submit that it was when Cain was unwilling to look to the Lamb. Did you follow that? As Cain was unwilling to look to the lamb as his sacrifice, that's when his relationship with his brother totally broke up. In other words, when he refused to look to the lamb, he refused to see himself as his brother's keeper. All right, and now we're coming to this point here, which means that in order to repair relationship, in order to undo that, we need to be willing to look to the lamb. The only way that we could possibly have whole, genuine harmony and relationships is as you and I look to Jesus on the cross. Uh, we're talking about starting point. Starting point is seeking God. Last week, it was beholding the Lamb. That's what, that's what started the discipleship experience for Nicodemus. You may remember that story in John chapter 3. Today, we're talking about the starting point of genuine community. Where does that begin? It doesn't begin by a really nice handshake. No, it starts way before that. It starts as people are willing to look to the Lamb. Because unless we're willing to look to the Lamb, we're still going to allow pride to take supremacy. For Cain, it was taken to an unhealthy extreme where his unwillingness to look to the Lamb actually turned into murder. Okay? And this is, this is really, this is huge. Which means that the opposite is true, that by trusting the Lamb's saving power, by trusting the Lamb and who God really is, that has the opposite effect on our relationships. That actually has the opposite effect of murder. It actually gives life instead of takes life. When we're willing to look to the Lamb, when we're willing to let sharing life, community, team, marriage, family, start at the cross. That's the only place it can start. That's the only place. Notice, back, back to John chapter 13, Jesus says to Peter, or I'm sorry, Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, hey, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. What did Jesus want to wash from Peter? He wanted to wash his pride. 
He wanted to wash the very things that were ruining his relationship with James and John. Peter was probably the, the foremost one who had had it out for James and John. Man, these sons of thunder think they're something. Yeah. <laughs> and Jesus wanted to wash that, but he's realizing, Jesus is connecting the dots. If you don't let me wash that from you, you've got no part with me. Do we understand? I don't know. I think we underestimate this, that, that, that our relationships with each other, the condition of our relationships with each other, the brokenness that we either create with each other or we let persist with each other, that actually severs our union with Jesus. I mean, that's why Jesus says, you know, in Matthew chapter 7, he's giving that uh, great sermon on the mount. He says, hey, if you're taking your gift to the altar and you want to worship God, but you have something against your brother, man, make that right first and then come connect with me. Jesus sees an interdependence between our horizontal relationships and our vertical relationships. And I know, I know I'm not the only one that experiences trouble in my horizontal relationships. Can I get a witness? All right. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we, I mean, we, we, maybe some of those relationships we're willing to kind of let crumble, okay? Maybe some of those relationships we, we aren't necessarily uh, deeply invested in, but there are some that are close to home, literally. And we cannot let that persist. We, we will not let that persist. And we long for God to reverse that, to undo that. And how does that happen? For starters, it starts as the, at the cross. And this is what Jesus is trying to explain to Peter. Peter, I know you love me, but do you actually love these guys too? And if you're not willing for me to wash that from you, you have no share in me personally. Like there's no possibility for us to connect, to, to really have that relationship. You can't let the pride that breaks our relationship with each other just persist and fester and still expect to connect with God. I wonder if we truly understand and appreciate the value that Jesus places on our relationships with each other. But I hope today that we can see that. And as a church, this is something that we really want to move towards. We're not just here to, to help people have a place to come on Saturday mornings and, and just kind of fulfill their church duty, that kind of thing. No, no, no. We want to generate disciples of Jesus. And a disciple of Jesus is not just concerned about this connection. A disciple of Jesus manifests this connection in the way they're able to connect this way. And that's why we're talking about seeking God and sharing life. And next week, we'll talk a little bit about serving the world. But to have part with Jesus, to really share in the life that Jesus has, has died for us to have, to have part with Jesus, it expresses itself in the kind of humility and laying self aside that actually makes for genuine community. And for some of us, we've tasted that and we long for that. Some of us, we, we, that's a completely foreign concept because most of our relationships are, are characterized by pride and, and coercion and kind of exalting one over the other. But Jesus calls us to a different standard. And here, this upper room, I mean, Jesus, Jesus preached the gospel through his actions. He preached the gospel through the emblems, Right? This is my body. I'm broken for you. I'm giving myself for you. This is my blood. I'm being crushed for you. He's, he's declaring the gospel in that upper room, but you don't get any sense of things kind of resolving there in the upper room. They are able to sing a song together. The Bible says they sang a hymn and walked out to the garden and stuff. But 
it's not until later that you get a sense that the, the tension that was there in John chapter th- 13, that the, just the massive like, barriers between each other in that upper room, those barriers eventually did turn upside down. The upper room was eventually turned upside down. And I want us to go there. It's in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. So you're in the Gospel of John. Acts is the very next book. And this, in Acts chapter 2, is a scene of the upper room turned upside down. <laughs> it's so powerful. In Acts chapter 2, I'll just start there in verse 1. I'm just going to kind of look at a smattering of verses in this entire chapter. But if you're there, go ahead and say amen. amen. All right. So Acts chapter 2, it's a completely different feel in the upper room. All right. Acts chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, this is basically six, seven weeks after that very scene in John 13. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. In other words, they were together. They were on the same page. They really were with one another. They were connected. And it says there, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them Divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each other, or one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with who? With the Holy Spirit. In that six, seven weeks, what was the difference? What turned that upper room where you could cut the tension with a knife to an upper room where they were truly in one accord? They were on the same page. The difference, I would say, is that they had a completely life changing experience they actually beheld the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. These disciples had beheld the Lamb of God and it changed their relationship with God, but not only their relationship with God, it radically transformed their relationships with each other. Do you realize that the power of the gospel actually has the power not just to change our relationship with God? Yes, I'm forgiven. It actually has the power to change our relationships with each other. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. That the upper room can be turned upside down. They beheld the lamb lifted on the cross. And then later in the chapter, they beheld the lamb as Peter preached him um, uh, before this this gathering crowd. Peter basically preaches this amazing message there. And in verse 38, I'm sorry, verse 36, it says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So here's here's Peter preaching this 10-minute sermon, after which 3,000 people are baptized. They experience repentance. Peter calls them to repent there in verse 38. Repent! Let every every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Their relationship with God was changed. They, They experienced repentance. They had turned to God. But not only that, that changed vertical relationship demonstrated itself and changed horizontal relationships. Just keep reading. Down in verse 42, notice what life looks like as a result of beholding the Lamb. Not just now for the upper room disciples, but beholding the Lamb for this entire multitude, these thousands and thousands of people. In verse 32, or sorry, 42, notice all the the relational words here. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then down in verse uh, 44, now all who believed were where? They were together 
and had all things in common. Am I the only one that's reading this here? All right. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Going, going a little fast. So we're in chapter 2, verse 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. In other words, they not only enjoyed each other's company, they not only enjoyed each other's food, which, by the way, is a huge sign of community, okay? <laughs> but they had all things in common. They enjoyed each other's stuff. Now that's coming close, right? Because your personal belongings are personal belongings, <laughs> right? To share your resources, to share your space, to share your things, to share your income. And these guys, they, they realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. The gospel has given me so much, why can I not give to others? They had all things in common. They fulfilled each other's needs practically. In other words, their priority was not in grasping, but in giving. Their, their sentiment, their, their hard drive was now not about greed. It was about generosity. Wow. <laughs> The gospel has the power not just to change our relationships with God, but our relationships with each other. There's a couple of other phrases there in in the next verse. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 46, and I love this. It says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. I love that. They weren't just content with every seventh day, let's connect. And sometimes we treat our relationship with God that way, but but God longs for a daily walk with him. But you know what? He actually encourages that when we have that daily walk with him, we have a daily walk with each other. So, so they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud, but who was the last person that you invited to your home? Can you think about that? The last person you invited to your home was probably not a stranger to you. Or if they were a stranger to you, is because you longed for them not to be a stranger anymore. Right? The people that you invite to your home are people that you want to build relationship with or, or you have built relationship with. And here's the thing. The early church, they were experiencing this phenomenon that I like to call radical welcome. <laughs> they had radical welcome towards each other. Hey, let's, let's just come over. Come over. And when they did, I like this phrase, they ate their food with gladness. In the, in the Greek, that, that means extreme joy. It's awesome. But you eat extreme, I don't know, maybe it was because the food tasted really good, but I, I think it was because of the very next thing. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. When the Bible talks about simplicity of heart right there, the, the literal translation is their hearts were without rocks. Without rocks. <laughs> without rocks. In other words, without impedance. There weren't barriers there that they let stay there. There weren't relational rocks. Nor were there rocks that they were ready to throw at each other, so to speak. Do you, do you understand what that... So th- they're eating with this simplicity of heart where they're completely sincere with one another. And when you have that kind of connection with somebody, of course you're going to really enjoy that. It's going to be a glad, glad time. In Acts of the Apostles, um, page 37, it's a commentary on the, the early church. It says that putting, this is describing what was taking place in the upper room. This is describing what was taking place amongst the disciples. It says, putting away all differences, all desire for the supremacy, they came close together 
in Christian fellowship. And here's the thing. It didn't happen just because they tried to be more friendly. It didn't happen because they picked up the latest communications book and said, okay, let's, let's try this, this line. Um, I feel this when you do that. No, that, that, that's not what... They didn't just pick up communication tools. What they picked up was the cross. And they saw him. And because they saw him, they saw their worth. Because they saw their worth, they saw the worth of others. Because they saw what he could give, they saw what they could give. And all of this, all putting away the differences, the supremacy, and all these things, this didn't happen by trying harder. It happened as they beheld the Lamb of God. Two simple scenes. An upper room filled with tension as a result of pride. An upper room filled with the Holy Spirit because pride was laid down. (laughs) An upper room where relationships were breaking and and the the goal for Jesus was almost at at a failing point. And then an upper room where relationships were whole and the goal of the Gospel Commission was actually about ready to take over the world. Man, that's the upper room that I want to be a part of, right? (laughs) And that doesn't happen just because we want it to happen. It happens as we behold the cross. I want us to think about, as we kind of wind down here, I want us to think about this very reality that beholding the Lamb changes my relationship with God and my relationship with others. That's the big idea. Simple truth. Beholding the Lamb changes my relationship with God and my relationship with others. Maybe you're thinking about right now, there is a relationship that you wish would change. (laughs) There is a relationship that you wish would be healed, would be reconciled. Or maybe you're thinking, man, I want to be part of a church where where those relationships are genuine. How can I I make that happen? How can I be a part of it? How can I participate in that? It's going to start at the cross. And let's be honest. Let's be honest. Maybe you're thinking of a name or a face or a loved one that, you know, you're wanting to heal that relationship with. The truth is that as you behold the cross, your heart will be drawn to them. But it takes two to look at the cross for that genuine community to really take place, right? We can't force someone else to to value me in the same way that I value them. That only happens as that individual comes to the cross. And so maybe that's your boat. Maybe that's the situation you're thinking of. And I would just encourage you to pray. Pray not just for a healed relationship, but specifically pray for the starting point. Pray that that individual, that loved one, would behold the Lamb of God on the cross. Because you can try, you can try your greatest communication tips. (laughs) You can try in your heart of hearts to keep coming to the cross daily. But your friend, your spouse, your child, your parent, your coworker, whoever it may be, they need to come to the cross too. And you can't make them, but you can pray that God would give them that starting point. And so as you're thinking about this, you know, how how, does this practically apply? What what are the the takeaways here? Simply this, when there are relational rifts, go back to the cross. When you're seeking connectedness and community, start at the cross. When you're building relational faithfulness in your marriage or your family or your potential marriage or your spiritual family, Go first to the cross. And what you'll find there are three things. You'll find humility. <laughs> you'll find humility at the cross. You'll, you'll be able to self set, aside, or set self aside 
where relational rocks can be removed, where pride can be removed, where you can understand the true value of yourself, but you can also understand the true value of other people around you. When you go first to the cross, you'll not only find humility, but you'll find responsibility. In other words, the responsibility to value each other. The responsibility to actually take the initiative to show care and demonstration, not wait for others to to show care and compassion to you. When you go to the cross, you'll find the responsibility to, to uphold the reality that you are your brother's keeper. Because unlike Cain, when you're willing to look to the Lamb, you'll become your brother and sister's keeper. When you go to the cross, you'll find humility, you'll find responsibility, but you'll also find the capacity. The capacity to love. The capacity to give grace because you've been given so much grace. The capacity to love only comes as we behold his love first. So 1 John 4.19 is all about. We love because he first loved us. It's a cause and effect. Um, I had a friend, I have a friend, I should say, that I, I grew up with. And um, he himself, he, he went into pastoral ministry um, as God took hold of his heart too. And I remember him explaining some phenomenon to me in his just kind of, uh, you know, he's got a silly way about him. And I just loved how he just made this, this, uh, this very simple and very applicable. He said, Godfrey, have you ever looked into the sun before? <laughs> No, I try not to, actually. <laughs> he says, when you look into the sun, have you ever noticed that after you look into the sun, you start looking around and you just see the sun everywhere? <laughs> I mean, you, you look at your brother and all you can see is the sun. You, you look at your friend and all you can see is the sun. And he explained something to me. He said, when you look at Jesus long enough, you start looking around at each other and you'll see Jesus in them. I don't know, maybe there's a relationship that you're like, how can I ever humble myself to go back to that? You know, how can I ever make that right? Look to the sun. (laughs) And as you look long enough at the sun, let that impact and transform how you look at other people. May we be the kind of community that behold the lamb, behold the sun. And then when we rub shoulders, when we shake hands, when we share stories and prayer requests, that we would actually see the sun in each other.